0: today is the third Sunday of Lent. That is the 40 days that lead up to Easter. And uh, what we have been doing for our play on the traditional idea of giving up things for Lent, perhaps you grew up doing that if you spent time in uh, a church or a church setting growing up. We are doing our second annual giving up unhelpful beliefs for Lent. And the goal is that we don't want to go back to them afterwards. We want to construct new beliefs in their place. Uh, today's topic, we are giving up the white bearded God up in the sky. Take a, at, take a look at this here. Let's look. Oh yeah, look at that. White bearded God up in the sky, right? Yeah, muscular, in complete control. Do you see the determined look on the God-like figure's face? <laughs> Dispassionate, right? Yeah, there's, it's just like, we're, we're, it, there's, there's, no, there's no feelings there. It's just, this is what's getting done because I'm God. Right? You're familiar with pictures like this? Yeah. So this is from the Sistine Chapel. I don't know if anybody knows that. Yeah, So this is. So funny story that always comes to mind for me when I, um, when I see images of God like this. Is um, my uh, my wife Kezia, was a camp counselor for a summer um, with uh, like middle school students, and I remember that um, uh, she told me this story once. This was right around the time uh, uh, we'd begun dating, and the camp ca- uh, the her students find out that she has a boyfriend, and they're like and they're like oh you have a boyfriend, and they're like kind of excited by that, and so they're kind of they're like slyly you know kind of shyly asking her questions like. Do you, do you like him? And she's like, well, yeah, yeah, I like him. And they're like, is he, is, is he handsome? And they're just like, well, I mean, I think so, you know, or something. And, and then they say, is he muscular? And Kesey says, well <laughs> I, I just I, I i'll never forget that that uh that story one because uh, no he's he's not muscular but uh, what 's funny to me is that question is he muscular that like kids think to ask about like the desirable, you know, ideal, right? Even so young, their cultural images form, you know, I think of this, I think of like, whoa, muscular God. There is a draw toward like figures who can take matters into their own hands, who, like, it doesn't have to be physical muscles, right? Figures who can forcibly change their circumstances by sheer strength of will. Or I think about my kids who are not yet middle schoolers, but they love to imagine having super strength. They love to imagine, like, they can totally determine their situation with this power, and they can just change things. And to me, that feels linked to the cultural imaginations of God we've inherited. Like, this image from the Sistine Chapel. Uh, one more funny example uh, that I posted this week on, on our Discord, so if you are following us um, on Discord, you can check out the uh, YouTube clip called The Tetris God that I put in YouTube, it's pretty great. Um, and yet, so we have those images, kinda, yeah, ugh, muscular powers, change things immediately. At the same time as that, and this is really good, I think we're increasingly critical of those assumptions about what is desirable or what god might be like like we can recognize those things as culturally formed most of us i think some of us can even recognize this as like there's problematic parts of that right that's a little bit of what i'm going to say today we can recognize a competing draw in us not toward muscular strong take matters into your own hand type pictures but Quite the opposite of like brute strength or force of will. We we're drawn to things that maybe do the opposite of that. I ran a workshop once with college students, uh, similar to what we're going to talk about today. Where we started uh, by asking everyone to think of the most positive experiences of influence of being uh, having a role model, uh, the most responsible uses of power they'd ever experienced. We just got everybody thinking about that, and then they would share who was that person and. You'd tell us a story about them. And not one of the reflections that we heard from a group of nearly two dozen college students was about being forcibly directed or treated dispassionately, right? They were all stories about being persuaded, trusted, encouraged, having somebody come alongside them, even like model vulnerability, right? Not modeling like dictating, but like the, there's something really beautiful about like a human connection that everybody talked about. And so that's interesting. We're drawn to that at the same time as like we kind of think, God, is that muscly, white-bearded thing up in the sky. To get to my point today, I think a really difficult thing for people today in our culture who are longing for spiritual health or for purpose to feel connected with God, I think a really difficult thing for us is we have these two competing intuitions about power, is power like those best experiences that teach us that, like, good, good influence is that beautiful thing where somebody comes alongside you and it's really, oh man, that's so amazing? Is it like that? Maybe some of us might even have experiences or stories of Jesus demonstrating that to us in a very personal way. So, is power like that? Or, Is power, imagining that picture of a god of power, like with these images and these metaphors we've grown up with, like the Sistine Chapel, where there's that white, bearded, muscular, dispassionate god up in the sky. We have these competing images. You know, the images of the god of power that we have don't match our actual intuitive experiences. What do we do with that, with that dissonance? That dissonance can actually have serious consequences. one, uh, one way we might think about this is from a, a really, really uh, challenging and difficult book written in 1973 by a guy named William R. Jones, and the book was called, Is God a White Racist? Because if we have a muscular God up in the sky who can forcibly change things in an instant if God wants to, but black people are suffering as much as they are and have been for hundreds of years under white supremacy. If that's the case, then I guess God must be okay with that. Or maybe God must be willing to allow it. If that's our image of God, Jones argued, then we must conclude God is a white racist. Now that's a challenge. That's a challenge to, like, let us see the severity of images of God that are inadequate or dissonant. Like we need to think through these further because that logic, is pretty sound, right? If that's our belief in God and God could change things, but this is, the, this is the experience for black people in America, well, maybe God is a white racist. And while systemic issues like white supremacy especially grab our attention Individual personal experiences challenge this as well. If God can just ex- exert God's overpowering strength to, ch- at any moment to change things, then why did my mom die of cancer when I was 15? That's the question I always ask. Why, did, why didn't my brother wake up uh, from a coma after a sudden stroke? Did I not pray enough? I wonder if you've ever asked a question like this. I wonder what your versions of those questions are because you are not alone if you have them. The big theological debates about God's power behind questions like these, they used to just happen in like universities and seminaries, and now because of the internet, because of just all of us like are, are, have so much access to information now, they're not just happening out there, they're happening in the minds of every single person. I wonder if you've thought things like this before or asked these questions before or like just felt hesitant when you prayed or confused when something terrible happened and you didn't know how to make sense of it. The result for many people, when we don't have a sensible alternative To this white bearded God up in the sky who can just do anything, the result for many people is that their confidence in God quietly dies. Because it kind of feels like God must be a white racist. God must be misogynist. God must not listen to my prayers. Frankly, maybe God doesn't exist because this God is not really worth worshiping when that is our picture. But what if there are good, sensible alternatives to the white-bearded, God-up-in-the-sky image. So much of my adult life personally has been a journey to articulate alternatives to that. This has been like one of the most important things to to me as a human being. How can I find... Like, I have this deep experience of God in my life that is different from that white-bearded, muscular God-up-in-the-sky that's been so good for me the, the images, the, the words, the, the language that I've been given to make sense of that God, they don't match. But is there something else that can match better? And I, like, this is important to me as a pastor, yes, because it's my, I, I talk about God and life for a living, right? So it's like, I'm kind of, uh, I want to figure this out. But also for my own sake, wrestling with the reality of losing a mom and a brother too young. Like, this is not just theoretical for me. Like, I need to make sense of those things. And I wonder if that's true in different ways for any of you. I want everybody to hear that if you at all relate to what I'm sharing about an experience of God that feels meaningful, or maybe like a longing for experience of God that feels meaningful, but the language and the images and the words and the, and the, and the, and the, and the theology that you've been given just doesn't, doesn't match up, I want you to feel hopeful today. This is exactly why this is among our giving up unhelpful beliefs for Lent and constructing something in its place. There are long traditions of different images of God that are better than the white-bearded God up in the sky, that don't cause dissonance, that don't quietly kill our confidence in God, that more closely resemble Jesus. They are alternatives from the margins. They're not from the centers of power. These are not images that are well represented in popular belief about God. So if you turn on the news, or if you look at what rises to the top of the social media feeds, these are probably not the images of God that you're going to be hearing. But these are deep wells, and you can believe in God in a different way that can serve you better. And today I'm going to unpack one of those alternatives, one a different way to believe in God than the white-bearded God up in the sky. And this alternative way is uh, sometimes called open and relational theology. You may have he- heard me use those words before, open and relational. This is important because it's to me. Like I said, like this is about like making sense of my own life as somebody who's experienced a lot of grief. Uh, th- it bears repeating for us to visit these things again. We've been returning to in this series this uh, line from Father Richard Rohr, who reminds us that we cannot, it's not possible for humans to think ourselves into new ways of living. We have to reverse that. We have to live ourselves into new ways of thinking. If we want to change how we think, what we believe, we have to live ourselves into that. We have to continually practice and experiment and try things in order for our beliefs to follow suit. And we find someday that we're like, hey, I'm just thinking about this differently. That's how life works. So to do that today, for a little bit, I'm going to be theological. I'm going to be like, I'm going to explain a way to think about God. Whoa. That's, you know, you're explaining something totally new. Uh, we're going to do that for a little while. I'm going to explain a different image for God for us. And then, in, uh, in particular, we're going to be touching on this part of theology called theodicy, which is the word that means how can you believe in a loving and powerful God when there is suffering in the world? Theodicy, that's a specific part of theology. We're going to be touching on that today. And then after I am theo- uh, the, uh, like a little theological for a bit, then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, uh, invite up a friend, and we're going to take that theology and experiment to make it a little bit more personal, okay? So that's what we're doing today. All right. The best image of God from this different view, this open and relational view, as opposed to white-bearded God up in the sky, so not the Sistine Chapel. Instead, we might think of something uh, like the great fellow experiencer. So I have another image for us that I've put up on the screen here. Here's another image that might capture the great fellow experiencer. So this is, um, uh, I've, I've selected a, a rendering of a non-white Jesus on the cross. This is by aboriginal artist Richard Campbell. This image can demonstrate a lot of things. I think one, it demonstrates that God is not up in the sky, but rather down here among humans. So I've selected a, 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 an image that is appropriate for Lent, where God is on the cross. I think that this demonstrates that God shares in the experiences of humanity in the world. I love that we have images of other human beings with Jesus. We have images of nature and other creatures with Jesus on the cross here. Demonstrates that God shares in the experiences, the joys and the solidarity and the pain. And then finally. I've selected a, uh, specifically the image, this is by an aboriginal artist, as I mentioned, because I think it's important that we recognize that the marginalized have more intuitive knowledge of God, the fellow experiencer, than the powerful or dominant do. That's another part of this. So I want, I'm going to keep this picture up here for us as we think about this. In seeing God in this way as the great fellow experiencer, This open and relational view, it actually rejects some very common ideas that are super popular about God in a lot of Christian belief. And I'm going to mention two things, and I'll put it up on the screen here for us too, of the two things that are different in this view. One is that God is not outside of time or up in the sky, as in our our other image. This is the open part. Time is unfolding for God, just like it is for us. The future is open. So it's one This can feel controversial to some people because people who are in this open and relational view are willing to say things like, God doesn't know the future in the classical way that's understood. Uh, now, I don't actually think it's as controversial as it sounds, which I'll explain more in a minute, but hold that in your mind, that little controversial thought. The second thing that is different in this view is that God is not solely determining or allowing our experiences from above or afar. This is the relational part. God isn't far away. God is in our midst. And life is always unfolding relationally through varying levels of relationship between creator and creation. And again, we have this very like creator and creation are sort of intermingled in that image. It's not just God's will that matters. Creatures have free will. Our choices affect things. On the face, this is not as controversial, right? Like most American churches, I think, would be fine with a teaching that God is relational. But usually only to a point. Most theologies reserve the right for their God to, if God wanted to, forcibly or solely determine something. God could do anything if God wanted to. God just chooses not to use that power usually. And this is where the view that we're talking about, open and relational, departs from that. The argument here is like, look around at the world. Look around at the suffering. It's that, that, that is God a white racist argument? Look at the injustice around us. If God could do anything, God is either asleep on the job, that doesn't feel worthy of worship, right? Right? Or God doesn't care about suffering. Well, that doesn't feel worthy of worship, right? So for the oppressed or the long-suffering, it can be really cold comfort to believe in a God who could do anything but refuses to. That's a, that's a really tough, bitter pill to swallow. And this is where I think that dissonance, that, that dying of confidence in God starts to set in for people a lot. And so different from that our open and relational view wonders instead if in every moment God is bringing all of God's self, every bit of God's creativity to move things toward goodness, to lure things toward beauty and creativity, to fight when necessary. God is always bringing all of God's self. It's just that God isn't the sole determinant of why things happen the way they happen. God is always a part of why things happen But there are so many billions upon trillions of other things that also have real influence over why things happen the way they happen. Individuals' free will, like people make cruel choices sometimes. And that affects things. That can't just be wiped away. There are natural processes in this world that have been trumped up by climate change that really caused scary, devastating effects for people in our world, for creation in our world. And those things cannot just be wiped away. That stuff's happened. It's real. Societal systems and structures, like racism, as William R. Jones pointed out, can't just be snapped away. Those things really have power. They really affect things. And so God can't, like Thanos and the MCU, snap a finger and just change it. God is not powerless to affect those things, but God can't just instantaneously step in and decide that some bad decision or some evil or some hurricane or any given instance of suffering is just not going to happen. It's not that God chooses not to do that. It's just that that's not an available power for anyone. Certainly many writers in the Bible toy with projecting those sorts of powers onto God. But although it might sound kind of wild from the American Christian perspective that tends to read those scriptures really literally, tends to read scriptures like nothing is impossible with God very literally, the evidence from the life of Jesus is that Jesus seemed to view God in this more open and relational way. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's will to be done. That God needs our partnership to accomplish God's will. That our actions and our prayers make a difference in the world. Presumably because, like, Jesus sort of viewed that God's will is not always done. We need to act. We need to pray. We need to join God in what God is doing because God's will is not always done. And that's where I think the biggest benefit in this open and relational view comes in. The biggest benefit is that we don't, have to call bad things that happen mysteriously part of God's will. We could just call them bad. Like I personally find a ton of freedom in saying, my mom's cancer was not allowed by God. My, um, cancer is, is against God's will, it's evil. The God I've come to love and follow would never allow such a thing if it could be stopped. It's just that God's will is not always done, but that doesn't mean that God is powerless to respond. There is a better picture of power than white-bearded God up in the sky who can just stop things. And the better picture is this fellow experiencer who was with my mom every step of the way in her painful journey with cancer, who was with me and my family in every painful step of the way in our grief bringing guidance and creativity and energy and love and working for healing, working through chemotherapy as best as possible to try to heal her and bring her relief and in each of us as a collective all at the same time. God is so powerful. God is the only one who has and can hold all of the inputs of this overwhelming and complex life and not short circuit, but act wisely and compassionately in the moment. God doesn't freak out. I think that's what it means when we speak things like God is in control. God is in control means God doesn't freak out. It's actually more impressive than knowing the future, I think, actually, this view of God. God doesn't just know the future. God knows all possible futures and is able to act accordingly and wisely as, all, as, as that is changing in real time. And so I see this God as the God who brought all of God's self to heal my mom, to try to bring her relief. And then when she died, God was bringing all of God's self to show me and my family comfort and consolation. My first ever spiritual experiences, first ever time I ever like believed in God was an experience of grief, which shaped me into someone who from an earlier age than most saw and empathized in pain that other people have. Asks big questions. So I I, I think God, from this view, doesn't bring about meaning from suffering because of suffering, but brings about meaning in spite of suffering. And that's a beautiful picture. We don't have to call the bad things that happen God's responsibility. Instead, we see God react to them and bring about meaning in spite of them. And I think again, as we as we are in this time of Lent where we are meditating on death and then resurrection. Resurrection comes after death. We have yet another perfect example of why that is such a powerful message for so many. Of this is the God who death is a part of our stories, but death is not the end of our stories. Resurrection can come after death. I think that what this means is God is all powerful, but not in the sense that like God's will is always done. That's that white bearded, God-up-in-the-sky view of God being all-powerful. Instead, we have God all-powerful in a different way, in a way that says no pain or suffering can't be redeemed. As these famous Bible passages, perhaps you've heard them before, like Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who love God. The way I hear that is not that anything that ever happened has a mysterious reason behind it. The way I hear that is no matter what pain or suffering or bad thing has happened, God can bring about meaning in spite of it. That's the amazing thing about the God of resurrection after death. So that's a picture of a different way to believe in God. And on this point, I wanted to invite up a friend now. So I'm gonna invite up my friend. I'm gonna invite up Beth Fratt. Let's give Beth a hand as she makes her way up. Thank you, Beth. I wanna turn away from our very theological talkings here. Yep. And uh, a couple weeks ago, as Haley briefly touched on the topic that we're digging into today, Beth shared in our Discord chat about an experience of trauma. Mm-hmm. Very, you, you shared really openly and insightfully, I thought. And I think it's a way that can highlight this less well-known open and relational view of God that I'm talking about, but, will, but can do so from a way that I think will feel really familiar to those who have a lot of experience in American Christianity. So I asked if Beth would be willing to share with us in person if we could do a little, little bit of like live interpreting of your experience as we go uh, using this open and relational framework and I'm really honored that you said yes because that is um, it. It is something to share a bit of your own story um, in front of people, but it's also another thing to like say, "Can we can we make you a guinea pig a little bit?" And that's uh, that's asking yeah. a lot. So thank you for doing that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience, and uh, and then we can we can start unpacking that a bit.
1: Yeah, sure. And I just want to give a little bit of uh, like we're going to talk a little bit about childhood trauma, and if that doesn't feel safe to you, if that feels like something that might you know, hit a nerve in a certain way. It's okay for you to tune out, it's yep. okay for you to walk out, Like whatever you need to do to stay safe in your space as well. Um, just wanna put that out there. Um, for me personally, I was born into a family that was full of chaos. My dad left my mom before I was one, and so she, as a single mom, relied on friends and family to take care of us so she could work full time. And unfortunately, one of the homes that she relied on There was a predator that lived there and he ended up molesting me and my sister and my aunt who was living there at the time. She was still in high school. And so my very young brain decided to tuck that memory away into the deepest, darkest recess of my mind, never to be retrieved again. But my body knew and it kept the score. And so over the years I was vigilant about my space and my settings. I made sure I was always safe. I positioned myself, I made sure new men and boys that were in my life from a very young age, I just made sure every single one of them was safe, or I left. And when I was 18, I was at a friend's house who um, had been friends with her for over seven years, very safe home. Uh, spent the night there, spent many hours there as she did mine. And for whatever reason, that particular day, her dad assaulted me. And that break of trust, my brain reacted the exact same way. I mean, this time I was fully aware of what was happening, but my brain was like, yeah, no, went down to the deepest recess of my mind. And that other memory was there and was like, nope, you can't be here, I'm already here, there's only space for one of us. And I kind of liken it that these two memories started to kind of duel it out. Mm. And that new memory actually won. Because it was very shortly after that that I started to realize that my vigilance all my life was not normal. Mm. My experience in being super aware of my surroundings was not normal. And so as I got into my 20s, I started to very slowly unpack, very slowly peel away and do some of the work that it takes to kind of figure out why this was my life. And um, when I was 24, I shared with someone for the first time that I thought something may have happened and by 25 I was in therapy. So that's a little bit of my background. Um, When I was in my 30s, um, by then I'm married, I have three kids, I was going on a women's retreat And this is something that I had done for years. I find retreats very helpful to kind of disengage so that you can re-engage with God. That's the whole... You had
0: a lot of church in your childhood, right? Yes. So it was a normal thing for you? It was a very normal thing for me,
1: yes. And this particular one, they had asked me to lead a small group and happy to do that. Drove up with my best friend. Um, We were chatting. We got up there late. Uh, Went right into that small group leader meeting where they give you the packet, you know, and it's got all the (laughs) questions and you know, the order of service for the weekend and everything that you need to do. And so as I'm looking through, there's a question that I'm supposed to ask Saturday morning that says, is there anything in your life that could ever happen that would cause you to walk away from God? And my gut instinct was no, because stuff had happened. Hmm. Even after I knew God, stuff had happened. And so I, I just... Chalked it up right. Okay. Okay. No problem. Okay. Um, have our first night, great session. Stayed up late talking to the ladies in my cabin, which is normal. Um, but the next morning early, I w- woke up to the sound of a voice saying, run. And that's not normal for me. That was a new experience. I opened my eyes. The two ladies were still asleep. Plus it was a male voice. So I was like, mm. all right, I'll bite. So put on my running shoes, walked outside. And it was the first time I saw the venue, and it was beautiful. It was the mountains of California, Southern California, which I grew up going to. I could smell the pine trees. It was gorgeous. It was breathtaking. I was taking it all in, filled with joy. And then I see this spot that looks like exactly where I was standing the first time I told someone I thought something had happened, and it all it all just flooded back. Mm. And I got angry because I had been doing this work for years. And you
0: just answered this question. Could no. Would you ever walk away from yes. God for anything? Yeah. yeah. And suddenly, oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And um, as I could feel anxiety and stress rising in my body, I started running really hard because I realized that the answer to that question is yes. Mm-hmm. There were three things That could happen that would cause me to walk away from God. And their names are Chloe, Rachel, and Lily, right? And so I'm sitting with anxiety this whole day, putting on that brave front because I'm not telling anyone. I'm a small group leader, you know, I gotta have it together. And by the time the evening came, I was so exhausted because my body was fighting me all day. My body wanted to ask the question, why? Yeah. Because I had never asked that question. Yeah. And my brain was like, there's no answer. Mm. There's mm. No, no one can tell you anything mm. as to why before you were even seven years old. Yeah that something like this would happen.
0: The, if, like, I think that this is an important kind of piece of, um, even that question that you're being prompted to ask, which is supposedly, I, I, th- I think the problem I have with being prompted to ask a question like that in a Christian setting is, it's trying to get you to like stand on the ground of like, okay, God's gonna do what God's gonna do mm-hmm. because God's will always happens. It falls into mm-hmm. that idea of the image of the white bearded God up in the sky, yep. and you just have to be okay with it. Right. and and, and it just sounds like this. You, your experience here is like almost like the, the water's boiling and boiling yes. and boiling until you can no longer handle it anymore.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 And so Saturday night is a night of worship, which is normal for a retreat. We start collectively like we do here, and then you can go off and do whatever you need to. And I sat there numb because I'd been wrestling with this mm. all day. I just did not want my body to ask that question. And after about an hour, I finally stepped outside to a safe, quiet place. I dropped to my knees. I was sobbing. Um, I was trying not to cuss, um, (laughs) and um, I silently screamed because I didn't want to draw attention to myself, why the F did you let this happen? And in that moment, I saw a picture of a dark room and a dark floor, and Jesus crouched in the corner, weeping as I was being abused long before I knew who Jesus was, long before I knew who God was, He was there. He was there with me in that pain and in that hurt. And immediately I heard that same voice say, it's not that your girls are a gift to you, it's that you are a gift to your girls, which had never occurred to me because I've always seen myself as damaged goods. And I remember just all of the anxiety and all of that stress released hmm. and i kind of sat back and was like well that was unexpected really? yeah. <laughs> i didn't expect to see something like i didn't hear an answer but I, I saw i saw that i was never alone yeah yeah yeah
0: i i i think that the, one of the reasons that it feels so um in, in in the spirit of what we're trying to do of like we cannot um, we can't think ourselves into new ways of living. That, that idea that we can't just like, you you in this time did not have somebody present to you a different way to imagine or yes. believe in God yeah. that would make those that, that bubbling water in you go away. Right. But you had an experience that relieved the pressure, turned off the, yep. the, the, the boil. And you and, and and then and then allowed you to see something like you can empathize with other people who've experienced yeah. pain as a result of this. Yeah. And what I think feels so important for us to do is not just to um, to let those experiences happen, but then to, to allow us to be able to talk about those in a way that yep. doesn't fall victim to this white-bearded God up in the sky, mm-hmm. you just have to be okay with that approach. And yeah. so I, I think what's interesting is we can interpret what happened to you two different ways. We can do it from the white-bearded God up in the sky view and say, well, God allowed this to happen so that you could be there for other people, and I, I feel like a tightness in my chest as I say mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Or we can come at it from this open and relational perspective, and we can say Jesus is as as, as Jesus is your fellow experiencer mm-hmm. in this. Jesus is just as in pain mm-hmm. as this is happening. Yep. And Jesus' power in this in, in this experience is to move you through in spite of this horribleness. Yep. Not because Jesus allowed it, but because Jesus is there with you, moving you through it yep. and allowing you to then be a light to others yep. because you have had that same experience of being walked alongside.
1: Yep. Yeah. And
0: those are two different interpretations.
1: Yes. Yes, and the next morning, you know, I felt much better after that, collected myself, went back in, you know, saying, did some other stuff right, stayed up late again with the ladies in my cabin mm-hmm. talking. The exact same time the next morning, I heard the same voice say, walk. Mm. And so I grabbed my Bible and my journal, and I walked up to the main area. There's a fireplace there. I sat down. I started journaling, which mm. is very therapeutic for me, pen okay. to paper, very therapeutic, processing through all of it. And I got another image, but this time it's more like a movie. Mm. And it was Jesus in the garden praying, which you read the scripture, mm-hmm. scripture of that a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. And scripture tells us that Jesus was praying so hard that he began to sweat blood. Mm-hmm. And what I saw in that moment was Jesus, in a very similar position I was in the night before, saying, if there's any other way, please do not make, like begging, begging God. And what God did is showed Jesus the pictures of the faces of the people that needed him, needed his example of love, needed his grace, needed the healing and the peace that comes through us knowing Jesus and knowing God. And in that I saw my face, Mm. but I also saw my abuser's face. Mm. And I understood the concepts of grace and forgiveness before that moment, but they just sat so much bigger for me because Honestly, what was available to me was available to him. Hurt mm-hmm. people hurt people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't know his story. I don't know why he was the way, why he chose to do the things that he did. But what was available to me for healing and peace and all those things was
0: also available mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're where we go from any of our personal stories that activate these questions and we start to try to make sense of it I mean, it goes to all, all manner of things. It goes to forgiveness. It goes to uh, redemption. It goes to w- w- what's next? How do I love? How do I, how do I choose to be compassionate in the midst of that? What does it mean to set boundaries if this, something like this has happened to me? You know, we have endless questions yeah. that move on from this, and, uh, and I, I, I think that as, as our Lent series go on, we, we might touch on some of those things, but for where I think I, I want to like just leave us sitting with today as we've as we talk about an experience of feeling met by God in the middle of something, or in the middle of being triggered by something horrible, and then being, being tasked with like sort of a choice of how do I make sense of this? I can make sense of it this way, or I can make sense of it this way. What I, th- what I think I want us to stay with is that there is, there, is, uh, there is generative energy when we ask questions from this open and relational view Whereas when we ask questions from the white-bearded God up in the sky view, it starts to shut things down and we either have to agree or disagree. Yeah. And that's where I think that confidence in God slowly starts to die. And what I think you were able to experience, and what I think if the, more we, the more we try to interpret our experiences this way, maybe we can have these experiences too, is at, when we're in those spaces and when we're having those exper- experiences, we teach ourselves the right questions to ask. And so um, as, a, as a final sort of takeaway as we, as we close today, and then I'm going to pray for us, is the simple idea of asking why is a part of your story. And what, what I think the best way we can live ourselves into a new way of thinking is to ask why with God rather than at God. We don't, we're not talking to a, an allower or a determiner up in the sky. We're talking to the God who is on the cross next to us in the room sobbing that is where we ask why and that's who we're asking why to. Beth, I'm really, I'm, I'm deeply honored that you would share with us and let us go to that place for you.
1: Can I just add one more thing? Please, just, please. So as I was kind of processing and getting ready for this, what I realized is that um, when I had big events happen in my life, a new relationship, a new job, new city to move to, having kids, um, the trauma comes back up Mm. and because it's with us, right? Mm. Like like it is technically part of our baggage. I know that's a bad word to use, but it is part of what we carry with us. And I just wanna encourage some of you, if if you are angry like I was in that moment, like I've done this work, when it comes back up, it's not that you haven't done the work. It's just trying Mm. to fit in to something new in your life. And it's trying to figure out where it fits. Yes. And I look at, like, like, it's what shade of green do I need to be for this season in your life? Like, like it's, it's, a, it's a part of us. And so it's something that if you're finding yourself in some really positive spaces in your life, but yet this like seems to be dragging you down, just reach out, reach out to your therapist or a therapist, reach out to people who have walked through this with you. Um, because that wasn't something that I kind of realized until as I was prepping for this yeah. and looking back at some of those bigger moments. Like it just, it just sat there yeah. and I didn't know what to do with it. And I've got a big life-changing moment coming up in September. And so I'm already trying to prepare. Like, mm. like what will this want to do this in my life? Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Very good, very good. Yeah. Well, let's pray in that space. <laughs> God, I do pray around for all of us here for all of us in this community, around the the resources that we need to move through the biggest hurts in our lives, the biggest difficulties that we see around us in our world that activate the questions in us of like, how can this be the case? And if we have that question coming up, why would you allow this? Gently help us to reframe that question right now, God. Help us to see an image of you with us rather than over above us. Help us to see your power to influence situations rather than some lie of a power that you can snap things to change in an instant. Help us to feel that all of the things that come together, whether it is therapy, good friends, prayer experiences, church community, whatever it is, help us to see all of the things that come together to move us through the hardest things that we experience and help us to see that you are the God that is not distant and far away and calculating. You are the God that is right next to us, that is close, that is our fellow experiencer, that knows what we are experiencing and can bring about resurrection after any death. In Jesus' name, amen.